You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. A 1923 crowd start lining up deep for a new musical, Running Wild. A fantastic hit. Comedy interspersed with songs. It's funny. But people aren't hitting the great white way for the jokes. They're here to see the new dance craze, the Charleston. Its creator, James P. Johnson, is a talented stride piano keystroker. He records a piano roll on paper so that it can be inserted into the player pianos that might dot the living rooms of the 1920s. It's like Johnson is playing in your house. High steps, flashing hands, syncopated feet ankle twists, men and women in mirrored taps, smiling, crowds delighted. The Charleston says everything about the 1920s. Fast-moving, high-energy, pop, 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 hotsy-totsy, blue sky, sunny side of the... But it misleads us as well. For the Charleston or dances like it, the tuba, the jaybird where you move your feet and shuffle, they were being performed well before this musical opens. Though this musical gives the Charleston its national prominence. It was played in Harlem theaters, and it was in existence in various kinds of dances the decade before. Emblematic, perhaps, of much of what we think of the 1920s is really a story about the 1910s. Flappers, motor cars, jazz, fast dancing, modern art, a decade of war and conflict, as well as fast change, the 19-teens. But it's not always the way. We blur decades. We create decades in the image we want. That may be exactly what's happened with this roaring decade that we all have images of in our minds. A shard of grass. A dirt road next to it. Maybe one small wooden house in the distance. It's still here in the morning, with few visitors. How would they find it? 
It's far from the train line, miles from the big city where there are hulky populations, harnessed, eager to get out. But it's always been the way. You can't get there from here. And so our shard of grass is undisturbed. Until now. Machines arrive. They're loud. Some are electric, which means they have power their operators can't dream of. Several multiples of the work that they used to do. They rip up the earth. They place the soil. And finally, they pour cement into the dirt row. Signs are created. They say Mulberry Lane, Auburn Road, Rose Street. The old house is torn down, removed. Its owner moved to a new tropical paradise. And in its place, 50 houses, 100 houses, subdivided in a way that couldn't have been imagined just 10 years before. This plot of land. Welcome to the 1920s and a new concept, sort of. The suburb. Not the first. There were early suburbs that would have been right outside the rail hubs, your Brooklyns, your Chester PAs. But this is something new. As Henry Ford's auto is getting cheaper and cheaper, mass-produced and reasonably priced cars bring city dwellers outside, and they're looking for new places to live. There's going to be tremendous growth in some places that never saw it. Out of Cleveland, Euclid, Ohio, it grows 279.2% in the 20s. Out of Philadelphia, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, grows 146% in its population. Out of Chicago, far away, Kane County sees 126% growth. In Paramus, New Jersey, growth of 100% right outside of New York City. And Los Angeles escape has quintupled the number of paved sidewalks in Burbank, California, and grow its population 400%. There's so much change, all of it reaching back to the 1910s, but perfected now. Two things stand out here. Electricity and gasoline. Neither is new. Electricity, we know, is hundreds of years old. Franklin Kite, you know, gasoline goes back to the Civil War, but their use is perfected now. And they will have multiplying effects. Electric power does strange things that we don't think about. It powers factories. It allows equipment to move around. Provides mobile power tools to allow one man to do the job of many in the factory. It illuminates, which can now allow them to reduce their size. In the mines, electric devices reduce the amount of miners needed by 40% during this decade. On the road, new finishing machines, new pavers can cut a crew of 10 and make it a crew of 6 or even a crew of 4. The automobile spread has some effects as well. It stretches American life out. It turns tiny villages into components now of metro areas, reachable in 20 minutes by car, and it does more. Machines cut down in the need for horses. Bad for horse farms, but more. Field needed for hay, no longer needed, can now produce new crops. Americans see new types of food now. Electric machines help farms too, make them more productive. There's new gluts. Improving post-war farms of Europe or dropping farm prices. It'll cause a bitter battle in Congress over farm policy. Change brings conflict, and the world is bubbling. 
There is just something about her, the soldier thought, when he came to the parties near his Montgomery, Alabama army base. He saw her, as many young suitors did, Zelda, the daughter of a prominent judge. Wild, a girl that danced, flirted both verbally and in letters, a flapper, a few might say, the kind of girl that got into the automobile with you. He was a blonde Adonis in a Brooks Brothers suit, right out of the Ivy League, now serving his country. Or so it seems. The reality was probably that Francis Scott Fitzgerald was in the Army to avoid the shame of not graduating Princeton in four years. Luckily, he'd never see the horrible trenches and fighting. He'd spend his time in Alabama, reading books, serving on the base, going to parties, and courting Zelda Sayre, as others in town had too. I lived with a dream, and I had the ability to make people see it. He typed his dreams to make them real, vignettes about life in the Ivy League with millionaire friends. That as a Midwestern boy seemed so magic, moving, and tragic as well. But no one wanted his stories. And through the war and post-war years, he saw much of Zelda, though she was always coy towards him. And there were vague notes that she'd send him about quarterback and the sons of Montgomery business leaders that she was also seeing. With war's end and just a vague commitment from Zelda, he went to New York City to make his fortune, flooding the magazines with potential stories, trying to work in advertising, and all the while working on a novel. Soon the dream seemed farther away. His cramped apartment and meager earnings were getting to him. There was a definite decline in letters from Zelda. There were mixed messages, she'd say sometimes. I'd like to lay in your arms under the moon. Mixed with references to a boy that she just happened to go to a party with, but just a friend. Fitzgerald drank more, and he wrote less. There truthfully is no 20s, just as there are no decades, really. They only matter to people like us looking at them backwards later and out of context. The 20s, if you must, has really three periods. It starts with a harsh recession, racial tension, boys back home from France with no employment, then there's a middle period of questionable recovery and anxiousness, with many depressions in certain industries. And a final few years of absurd mayhem so quickly brought to an end that you'd had better not blink during it. There's always unemployment during this decade. If you take the National Bureau of Economic Research stats, non-farm unemployment, it averages 7% from 1920 to 1929. 
And this is in a time during the 20s where those unemployed have no COBRA, no unemployment insurance, no Medicare or Social Security, a patchwork of state programs that are providing benefits only to the neediest and not well. There are changes that coalesce in this decade, for sure. But they've been present in the teens, the century's turn as well. Employment as such becomes questionable because machines are doing so much more. A pack of cigarettes takes half of the labor hours that it used to. So does a garment or an automobile. That also means there's more cars that hit the streets. I mean, this is a big change. In 1920, one out of 16 Americans owns an automobile. By decades end, that's one out of five. Lower prices, new financing makes it happen. And when you think about it, that cars are often shared. Hey, buddy, let me borrow yours. You know, many Americans have access now to mobility and to an automobile. They're increasingly closed cars now, and that means something. It means longer trips. It means you can use the car year-round. It's not just for the rich as an entertainment device, but it's for everyone. It also means that youngsters can hide from the parents. You can use the cars more now because the cracking process developed in the 19-teens is perfected now, and three times as much gasoline comes from a barrel of oil. There's other changes. More chit-chatting on the telephone now. One-third of households start the decade with a phone. It's close to one-half by the decade's end. And again, when you talk about sharing and I'll run to my friend's house to make a call, more people are having access to phones now. Local calls increased 46% during the decade. Long distance, now more possible, as the networks are better, is up 71% in the 20s. In lighted rooms across the nation, Americans are watching movies. They're watching some suggestive movies as well, but always cleverly disguised. Rudolph Valentino, dressed provocatively as a chic. Or Greta Garbo and her fabulous eyes. 23,000 theaters spring up across the nation. And Americans go a lot. 100 million movie visits a year during this decade. Two-thirds of the nation go to the movies each week. F. Scott Fitzgerald had no money for movies, or soon for living in New York City. Frustrated, broke, he moved in with his father in St. Paul and pounded the typewriter keys some more. He was sober as he wrote. And what he created was a story of desperation. Amory Blaine's story, the story of a college student at Princeton who doesn't do well in classes, makes a lot of social connections, then gets out and struggles working at an ad agency and seeks to win the heart of a woman, Rosalind. And of course... This is sounding a wee bit like Fitzgerald. Well, Rosalind doesn't want to marry into poverty. She marries a wealthier man. Amory is distraught. Without her, without friends, he goes on a binge. And he returns to his alma mater, Princeton, in the middle of the night, walks the campus, alone, lonely, desperate, screaming, I know myself, but that is all. It is so obvious 
It's Fitzgerald, about Fitzgerald, a writer talking about his own lonely life from the Ivy League now back to the parents' home in the Midwest. It must be something that he said to himself, I know myself, but that is all, as he sends the manuscript in a package to a New York editor. It is his last chance. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. If we return to our quiet and soon-to-be-subdivided little hamlet, the paved road built with gasoline and electric power, we'll soon see barreling down the mechanism to make this scene real, to fill the houses that will spring up with sofas, chairs, and arch-shaped radio boxes. The Mack truck, which by the end of the teens can now carry seven tons, can take freight from the railroad and bring it to new locations in an efficient way. A new device, too. A trailer is attached to the truck. Four wheels at first, then more. Now you've doubled the capacity of it by decade's end. Forget the train. You've got truck convoys and long-distance trucking, and they can do the work that trains were doing. Just in time, as the federal government with the 1920 Transportation Act took a hold of railroads. Long seen as enemies. Railroads, the source of barons, all of the political fights of the 19th century, the cause of those trusts, influencing all the high prices Americans were paying. Bad railroads, bad. The federal government was then hesitant to give up the railroads that it took. They completely took over during World War I. So in 1920, it did release them back to private ownership, but it set rates, it capped increases, it actually made it difficult to acquire profit, no more than 5%. Anything excess would go into a shared funds and then get sent to the underperforming railroads. This, all while trucking, until the 1930s, remained largely unregulated. And of course, it thrives. A truck, when elongated, when wheels are added for balance, when passenger seats 
are fixed, carried into the cab, becomes a mover, not only of things, but of people. This stimulates the nation's mind in a way that we might not think is possible from the motor vehicle. It influences education. The school bus, largely a 1920s creation, provides now the ability to regionalize schools. Why does it matter? Because one out of four Americans still at this time is learning math and reading and history and everything else in a one-room schoolhouse. This in 1920. They may have had to walk a mile to get to school and taught by a teacher with probably no more than a high school education and few supplies. The American one-room schoolhouse does not die easily. It doesn't end even during this decade, but in 20 years as buses bring students to new regional schools with multiple grade levels and specialist teachers, teachers just teaching math, who are experts at it, the number of one-room schoolhouses is cut in half. Johnny can read, thanks to gasoline and tires. In March 1920, there was no question about what America was reading. They were reading a new novel, and it was a sensation. At first, Amory noticed only the wealth of sunshine creeping across the long green swords, dancing on the leaded window panes, and swimming across the spines. Gradually, he realized that he was really walking up University Place, self-conscious about his suitcase, developing a new tendency to glare straight ahead of him when passed by anyone. Several times he could have sworn that people turned to look at him critically. He wondered vaguely if there was something the matter with his clothes. Yes, those typewritten sheets now made it to a supportive editor who published Fitzgerald's novel, March 26, 1920. This story of boarding school, college, post-college, became an overnight hit. Francis Scott Fitzgerald was now a phenome, the poet of the Jazz Age, spokesperson for the lost generation, and, as he writes, Saturday evening post stories. His stories now accepted rather than rejected about young women bobbing their hair and dancing. He becomes king of the flappers. Zelda now shows no hesitancy, runs up to New York and marries him. They are immediately a celebrity couple and all their actions covered in the magazines. He sets up a new life. They will work on a play which will become, he feels, a Broadway hit. They move from Connecticut to New York City, have a riotous summer of 1920, many parties. He and Zelda have a child. He churns out, quickly, The Beautiful and the Damned. It's a book about many things, but mostly about his own marriage. His next novel will take much longer. The couple moves to Great Neck, Long Island, and take cars during the day to the city where they can go check on the progress of their Broadway hit. Long Island features the wealth of New York City, and all along they are partying. But the play, The Vegetable, about life and success and ambition, is not as much of a hit as expected. In fact, it does very poorly, puts him in debts. 
He writes short stories to cover the deaths from the plague. Fitzgerald's not happy about it. He drinks a lot. The couple argues. Of course, life is a process of breaking down. Fitzgerald would write in an essay much later. Back to all of those youngsters going off to school. What do they eat before they go? Why, C.W. Post and William Kellogg would like to tell you. It's not just slop in a bowl anymore. It's Rice Krispies and Wheaties. I suppose the original superfood. These are the first widely marketed and heavily advertised breakfast cereal brands, and they develop in this decade, as does Kraft, Heinz, Seal Test, also perfect the mass-produced food product sold by advertising, delivered by truck. It's easy to advertise because there are 4,500 magazines in the United States now printed. Americans read them a lot, 180 million issues a year. Advertisers indeed worry about this. How can they reach all these people with so many magazines to read? How do they reach the slapdash reader, the hasty newspaper peruser, when there's so much? A lot of sloganing in this decade. I'd walk a mile for a camel. Reach for a lucky. They all help to sell cigarettes. The latter actually saying, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet. Oh, that's helpful. Chesterfield, they satisfy. Some names we know, Betty Crocker and the Jolly Green Giant, become part of national consciousness during the 1920s. There's some who think the change in pace and society is ill-advised, that all this growth has a dark side. And we know this because Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt presents the fictional realtor, a booster of his little town, Zenith, the best little town in America. And he goes through many stages. At first, he's an ardent booster of Zenith. Then, he goes into rebellion and becomes a socialist. Sinclair Lewis's novel attacking this small-town life and the boosterism and commerce of America sells quite well. It's a surprise hit and pays for him to take on society more in Arrowhead and Main Street. This bring forms of music that might never have been heard otherwise. The stuff of little bars that proper people didn't go to. Jazz, with its New Orleans roots. It's insistent on the passion of the player. It's the music of speakeasies. Gershwin, Ellington, Dorsey, Glenn Miller. They make it respectable, now almost orchestric. The 1920s jazz they hear is soft, you might say today, smooth jazz. But it's good. Rhapsody in Blue. Country considered the hillbilly stuff of local parlors. Now reaches national fame. The National Barn Dance radio show starts in 1924 and is an insane hit. And it leads to a new program, the Grand Old Opry. 
Diamonds win hearts. So spoke the magazine advertisement for Loftus Brothers of St. Louis, Missouri. Dazzling white-blue diamonds, white-gold rings, all with no money down. Their products, named after women, the Thelona, the Marna, and the Suzanne. Buy it now. Our credit service is open to you. Right down Olive Street in St. Louis at Goldman Brothers, 11028 Olive, there's an RCA Radiola 28 with super heterodyne speakers. The biggest radio value in years. At $80. But available in payments as low as $250 weekly. This is not a St. Louis phenomenon. It happened all over the nation. Whereas the consumer of the teens would ask, How much is the cost? The consumer of the 1920s would ask, How much are the monthly payments? It starts with General Motors Installment Company in 1919, and it soon spreads to all industries. In a macroeconomic view, households are being encouraged to spend more than they would. Great for the economy. From 4% of household spending on durable goods, it spikes to 7%. That's an economic achievement, right? Sales spike. Everybody wants to try out installments. Installment companies become like the mortgage companies of their day. There's so many of them, everyone's starting one. And they're providing small stores with needed credit services. 4% of households buy cars on credit in 1919. 15% by the end of the decade. If you look at all car purchasing, 60% of products are being purchased on credit by the end of the decade. 80% of radios. There is a little difference between this type of buying and the type of buying that you might do on a credit card. Uh, the loans are draconian, even for vacuums or radios. It's kind of like today's mortgages or some car loans. You start missing payments. Indeed, some of them, if you miss one payment and your item can get repossessed, and then all the payments you made in the past are for nothing. So the reward is increased, but also the risk. These worries are for later in the minds of most Americans. In 1925, consumer debt is $1.38 billion. In 1927, that goes to $7 billion. Huge increase. Strictly speaking, the ability to buy on credit, this is a benefit. This is allows average people to have access to goods now that they used to have to save up for before they could get. And so that's an inherent good. But there's also associated risk during the 1920s. This is before the Depression, remember. 80% of families in the 1920s have no one to fall back on if the key breadwinner loses his or her job. So insecurity and risk are the true experience, what it's really like to be in a decade like this, even in something that seems stable, like American farming. Our friends' electricity and gasoline will be at work here, too. Being a farmer now in the 1920s means tough decisions. You'll have to buy a tractor to clear the land. That's a decision you'll have to make that is much different from using the old horses and wagon and cart and the like. You have to buy fuel. 
No longer can you produce your own fuel in the form of hay. Now, this can be positive in a way because it means there's more land for you to farm on. But it also means you're going to have to produce more crops. Why? Because everyone else has more land to farm on and everyone else is producing more crops. And this is okay because trucks can bring cotton from Arkansas or fruit from California faster than before. This means prices are dropping. Markets are competitive. It's no longer easy to own a family farm. Now, profits can be really good if you're good at it. You make all the right calls. But it's much more of a business now and harder. Population is shedding to cities and these new suburbs we talked about throughout the 1920s. The grand old party in Washington is split. This is a real strong fight. Charles McNary, one of the leaders in the House, tries to pass price supports for farms. But Eastern Republicans like Calvin Coolidge want no part. He vetoes the bill. For a lot of farmers, the 20s didn't roar and the Great Depression might have come early. Towers is a splendid white mansion on the shore of Long Island, New York, not at all far from where the Fitzgeralds had moved. It's beautiful. It glimmers at night. It was owned by the Vanderbilts, owned by the Hursts, the Belmonts. It's suspected to be the inspiration for the house of Fitzgerald's greatest protagonist, Jay Gatsby. A factual imitation of some Hotel de Ville in Normandy, with a tower on one side, sparkling new, a thin bed of raw ivy, and a marble swimming pool, and more than forty acres of land, as Fitzgerald describes it. The summer of 1922 in Great Neck would have found Fitzgerald at many of these type of places a world right out of the novel that he would later write, hobnobbing with celebrities and writers, with the rich of New York society who would host fabulous parties and then take their motor cars into the city. And indeed, a lot of the dimensions of the novel, The Great Gatsby, are in Fitzgerald's life in 1922. The mansion we mentioned. His neighbor, Max, Von Gerlacho, a bootlegger who may have uh, used the term old sport. The Corona garbage dumps, horrible piles of garbage. This was real, where the rich auto traffic would have to go through to get from their homes in Great Neck and other Long Island cities to New York City. This in-between point from one paradise to another, destined to become the action point. Fitzgerald actually has a friend who owns an auto repair shop there, and this is the inspiration for the character in the novel. Indeed, summer of 1922 became so much for Fitzgerald that he had trouble thinking, trouble writing, and he's off with Zelda to work on the novel in silence in Europe. This takes some time. The couple are feuding. 
Zelda's annoyed that Fitzgerald is busy with his novel. She takes up with a French aviator and then asks for a divorce. There's fights, arguments, drinking. All of this ends up a little bit in The Great Gatsby, in the characters of Daisy and Tom. Indeed, it's two years on and he hasn't written his second novel. Something happened in 1924 that could not be repaired, he writes. But the next year, The Great Gatsby is released. It's not the title that Fitzgerald initially wanted. Indeed, the insertion of the word great comes from a suggestion from Zelda. But unlike his smash novel, This Side of Paradise, The Great Gatsby is no hit. Many, and this is just in 1925, midpoint of the decade, are getting a little tired of the Flapper King and hearing stories about Ivy League and Princeton and rich people. Painfully forced, writes the New York World about Gatsby. The writer seems a bit tired and bored, writes the St. Louis Dispatch. One finishes Gatsby with a great feeling of regret. Not for the people in the book, but for Mr. Fitzgerald. So writes the Dallas Morning News. Indeed, for Fitzgerald, this is the end of his Roaring Twenties, and it's only 1925. He'll live a decade, a few years more. He'll see Zelda institutionalized. He'll write more. He'll go to Hollywood and write screenplays. But the glitz is gone. In his wildest imagination, he would not think, as he typed up scripts during the Depression with far junior co-workers in Hollywood, as he wrote sad essays on alcoholism and despair, that his story about Gatsby would become literature at all. As far as he knows, going into his death in the early 40s, he is a pop hero, a playboy, a representative only of a nostalgic decade, and not a great writer. He'll never live to see Gatsby actually taken up by soldiers in World War II as part of a special book program available to them. They love it. He'll never live to see Gatsby taken in as part of high school curriculum, accepted now as a great work of literature, and not just some nostalgic time piece. Yet, and then this is something important to say, Jay Gatsby is not America. The average American is either a farmer or an unskilled worker. Their wages rise little during this period, and unemployment, as we mentioned, non-farm is still pretty high. There is no Charleston for them. Now, to be sure, there's a little bit of that rising tide lifts all boats, and some credit availability wasn't there, so you're buying more, and you have a radio where you might not have had a chance at it in the last decade. Cars are going to get really cheap, down to $300, not out of the range with some saving and some credit. And if you don't have a car yourself, at least you know somebody now who has one and can borrow it for those situations where you need it, like moving. Quality of life does go up in that way. For more than a few average Americans, there seems to be a way out. They're going to make their fortune by purchasing land in a place everybody covets, everybody wants. Tropical, sunny Florida. And if we go to our Times Square as the running wild play and people are lining up for the Charleston, there's a billboard overhead that says, It's June in Miami. The billboard, of course, would be placed there in October or November. Americans, particularly in the northern, start investing in Florida. So much so 
that prices on land are bidded up. Land gets so hot in Florida that realtors can't even handle it. There aren't enough of them to go and meet people who want to bid on land. They hire binder boys, the binder being the down payment, and they wait at lots. Sometimes when the tourists come, they'll play tennis with them, and the tennis court that they're playing on may be the only thing developed on that lot. Then they collect their down payment. That down payment would, in some cases, be the only transaction that would ever occur. There were still so many down payments coming into Florida that the economy there was boomed and new people were moving in to become binder boys. And there's investors too. And among those who invest heavily is William Jennings Bryan. The prairie populist is now a real estate speculator. Sells his house in Nebraska and buys Florida land. By 1925, He's able to sell $500,000 of land, half a million, plenty in 1925. In fact, he's attacked by some opponents who say that he's given up on his principles now. No, he insists. He had donated land in Nebraska to local churches. And besides, given his talents, he could have made a million dollars in any year he wanted. But Brian is one of many who are buying real estate, and in 24 and 25, there's nothing wrong with it right now. There is a Fortune magazine article which will provide an early warning on this, that maybe something's up, that these these land prices are going to be very difficult to ever get back. And it's really by 1926, when there is a hurricane, there's exposure of some of the more obvious fraud cases. Some of the dollars coming from North just simply drain out. Things dry up quick. People find that land that they had invested in Florida was nothing more than an inhabitable swamp. Now, everybody in the 1920s know that these people who invested in Florida real estate in the mid-1920s were absolute fools. There's a movie, The Coconuts. It pokes fun at the foolish Florida land investors. And it stars Groucho Marx. And a funny thing's going on. While Groucho Marx, who never got involved in this Florida real estate bubble, he's actually very frugal. And he saves all his money and invests it in something more reasonable. The stock market. Stocks are going wildfire. RCA, Radio Corporation of America, for instance, is one of the celebrity stocks of the time period. Goes from twenty to $400 a share. There are others. I mean, anything with electric is hot. Westinghouse, General Electric, all of the generals that it said, General Motors, General Electric, General Foods, all of these companies. But what allows the stocks to go up, at least partially, is credit as well. Margin loans. Some cases... If you're buying a stock, you'll put down no more than 10% of the value of the stock. I need not tell you that by 1929, Groucho Marx and so many other investors will lose fortunes. We tend to think of economic recessions as the worst thing, and they are, economically speaking. I mean, loss of income, loss of housing, hunger in some cases. However, There are some issues when an economy booms as well. The pace increases, perhaps beyond the ability of many average people who are making transactions to keep up with. Change good, yes, but also bad. 
The machine replaces the worker. Neighbors, families are lost, drift apart, bidding and bidding items that aren't available. Competition for items that may not be worth the value because it's a boom time. What economists would call inflation. But sometimes through uh, monetary manipulations, we can reduce inflation, but still have inflation in certain products like housing, credit purchasing, toil for things that no longer have value. Since there is a dark side to booms, is it better to say that you'd rather the economy stay in recession? Of course not. I don't think so. The positive effects of maybe a little more community spirit, simplicity, family life, of human excitement tamed, perhaps, less nervous energy in some ways. All of those were actually reported during the 1930s. We have some evidence of that. Families getting together closer because you didn't have the economy to support each individual member. All of that, though, has to be placed in the context of wretchedness. Good people put in unthinkable situations, and of course we'd never want that. Still, booms, by the time you can even tell a boom is happening, have the bad sides too. Well, everybody, almost everybody eats during a boom. There's no worry about where the next ham sandwich will come from if you're in the 20s or the 90s. There's a lot of work product wasted. There's a lot of capital wasted. There's a lot of your wages wasted. Now, why bring any of this up? Well, are we entering a boom right now? I don't know. It always could happen. And then you'll have Carlson to thank for giving you a more rounded view of what's going on. Reminder about that premium podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Premium.com. And thanks for listening. Hello, all. Eric Rivenus with the most notorious podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.